Good evening, and welcome to Socrates in the City. My name is Eric Metaxas, and I'm thrilled to see so many of you here tonight. Uh, it is a Monday in July. I don't know why so many of you are here. I know it has nothing to do with the speaker, but I'm glad to see you. Uh, how many of you were here two weeks ago for the Dick Cavett event? Would you raise your hands if you were here for the Cavett? Oh, look at this. Very nice, very nice. Um, if you were there, you will know that uh, Dick Cavett did several things never before done at a Socrates in the City event. I won't tell you what they are now, but we're going to have that video posted very soon, or you can buy the CDs, which are available uh, here tonight. One of the things involves bloodshed. That's literally true. And if you were there, you know what I'm talking about. And he's being arraigned. Um, not Cabot, but the man who shot him. Um, uh, the other thing that he did, which has never been done before at a Socrates and City event, uh, involves uh, Jack Benny's vocabulary. Yeah, knowing laugh from two people who are paying attention. Great. And also Fred Astaire's vocabulary. But if you listen to the CD, you'll know what I'm talking about. It was, I think you'll find it very, very uh, entertaining. Uh, going from Dick Cavett to N.T. Wright is enough to give most folks whiplash. Um, but that's what we do at Socrates in the City. We're very proud of that, of our breadth. Uh, <clears throat> that wasn't funny. And... Um, Although in terms of whiplash uh, and breadth, I, I would have to say even more impressive than the Cavett to N.T. Wright shift is what I did personally just before Cavett. I was at an event in Texas with James Robeson and Kenneth Copeland. And going from Kenneth Copeland to Dick Cavett, that is definitely whiplash-inducing. Uh, and if you don't know who Kenneth Copeland is, I doubt your salvation. Uh, of course, this year marks the 400th anniversary of the King James uh, Bible, uh, which is what brings uh, Bishop Wright to New York City this week. In a way, you could say that the King James Bible links all of the people uh, I've just mentioned. What I love about the King James Bible is that it holds great appeal across the board for people uh, who are literary uh, agnostics like Dick Cavett, for educated uh, English ecclesiastical figures like N.T. Wright, uh, as well as for plain-spoken country and western down-home Texans like James Robeson and Kenneth Copeland. They all know the Bible was written, of course, in the King James, and why mess it up? Uh, if it was good enough for St. Paul by Jingo, it should be good enough for the rest of us. Um, so two weeks ago, I was with James Robeson, who says things like, that there was a slick-headed feller. He actually said that. He said somebody was all talk. Uh, he said, he, no, he was all hat and no cattle. Um, right. And um, so, he, you know, he, he talks like that, and he loves the King James Bible. Uh, and uh, yesterday, uh, I was at, uh, did I mention this? Hang on one second. Yes. Yesterday uh, at my church, Calvary, on 21st and Park Avenue, I had the privilege of hearing uh, Bishop Wright preaching, and he speaks differently from James Robeson. He actually used a phrase uh, in his sermon. He was talking about uh, he being Bishop Wright, who's sitting right here. Don't look at him. But he, um, he, was, uh, he was referring to the parable of uh, the, the seeds that, you know, the birds uh, 
take them away. And so, but, but he used the phrase, he said, not now the rescuing eagle, but the wild destroyers. And notice I can't look him in the eye. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, I think both that and the way James Robeson are beautiful, but very, very different. But they both have the King James in common. And I love that. So I'm excited about hearing Bishop Wright this evening. Not now the rescuing eagle. <clears throat> that that uh, Bishop Wright. Uh, so we've had the privilege of hearing from Bishop Wright twice uh, before at Socrates in the City. I'm happy to say that one of those talks is available in the upcoming Socrates in the City book. Yes, there's a book uh, coming out. It's coming out this fall. We're excited about it. You can pre-order it uh, at Amazon.com on your iPhones right now. Um, we normally frown on people using their iPhones during these events, but if you're going to use it to order the Socrates in the City book uh, or any book with my name on it, I'm going to give it a, a pass. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wink. I'm going to wink at that sin. Uh, if you use your iPhones uh, to, uh, to do anything else, to play Angry Birds, for example, you will be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. Thank you very much. Um, but seriously, we have uh, 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 Bishop Wright's previous talks available on CD uh, out here on our CD table and many of his books uh, available as well. We recommend those to you. Um, I really was thrilled to hear um, the Right Reverend Doctor uh, preach at my church yesterday. Yes, Bishop Wright uh, spoke at Calvary St. George's uh, on 21st and Park Avenue. Think of it, of all the churches he might have elected to speak in yesterday, I think it is right and meet and fitting and proper that he should have chosen Calvary St. George's. We know that Tim Keller would never give up his pulpit to a non-Presbyterian... not under any circumstances, no matter how wonderful and distinguished and famous a preacher uh, anyone would be, Keller would never do that. And because of that, shall we call it recalcitrance and hidebound denominationalism, <laughs> this sad city will sometimes have to endure PCA second stringers <laughs> at Redeemer until, until the rapture, which, by the way, they also believe will never happen. Um, that's between them and God and Tim LaHaye. Now, if you don't know, if you don't get that reference, I, I doubt your salvation. Um, yesterday, uh, after uh, Bishop Wright spoke at Calvary, I may have mentioned it's on 21st and Park Avenue, uh, at the 11 a.m. service, so you can sleep in a little bit and still get there, uh, I had a chance to speak with him afterward at the reception, afterward, and then at the luncheon. And by the way, you may notice that Redeemer Presbyterian never seems to have receptions or luncheons after their services. That's considered too churchy. Yeah, too churchy. It didn't focus group well. Um, uh, in any case, when I... Uh, I probably shouldn't say it now, but I recently had an open vision about Redeemer, and I saw the word Ichabod. I don't know what that means... I, I don't know what it means, but perhaps after the service we're, we're going to talk. Um, but when I spoke with Bishop Wright uh, yesterday, I asked him, and this is of course important, I asked him what, what it was appropriate to call him, um, because he's no longer officially the Bishop of Durham, gave that up uh, a year or so ago. I asked him, may I still call you Bishop, uh, or perhaps now it's Dr. Wright, but then I thought maybe Dr. Wright sounds too much like Dr. Bright, maybe he's uncomfortable with that. Uh, maybe it's, I can call him Reverend Wright. 
Um, so I was, I was a little confused about what was appropriate. And then, of course, uh, there's the whole N.T. versus Tom issue. Um, Bishop Wright's more scholarly books have the N.T. appellation, while his more popular level books have him listed, and you can check at our book table, as Tom Wright. Um, of course, his children's books have him as Little Tommy <laughs> Wright. And in some cases, Baby Dumpling Wright. So it's all a bit complicated and confusing, and we know how fussy the Brits can be about propriety and verbiage using just the right words. Not now, the rescuing eagle. Uh, okay, now regarding NT, we know what the T stands for. Obviously, it's Tom, but I think it's curious that no one seems to know or admit to knowing what the N stands for. Curious, isn't it? And, uh, but since the right reverend is British, we must assume that any N has to stand for, of course, Nigel. Just as it would be logical to assume if it were a C that it would stand for Clive or Clives. Uh, and just as we can accept that Clive Staples Lewis wished to be known as CS rather than Clive, um, so too we can accept N.T. Wright, preferring that, of course, over Nigel Wright. When you hear Nigel Wright, you think perhaps he used to be the bass player for Foghat. So I'm not sure we settled on. I think Bishop Wright. I think we're going to settle on Bishop Wright is the way forward. Okay, now in case you didn't know who Bishop N.T. Wright was, uh, he is one of today's best-known and respected New Testament scholars. He's the author of more than 30 books for both popular and scholarly Tom and N.T. audiences. And his work has been praised by such figures as J.I. Packer and Anne Rice. That's true. Now, that will give you whiplash. It's like Chuck Swindoll and Susan Sontag. It doesn't, they don't go together. And if you don't know who Chuck Swindoll is, I, I doubt your salvation. Um, in any event, to be a little bit serious, uh, Bishop Wright became Bishop of Durham in 2003. And this past year, he served on the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lambeth Commission on Communion. He studied for the ministry at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, and from 78 to 81 was fellow and chaplain at Downing College, Cambridge. He then moved to Montreal as assistant professor of New Testament studies at McGill University and returned in 86 to Oxford as university lecturer in New Testament and fellow and chaplain of Worcester College, Oxford. He became dean of Lichfield in 1994 and in canon theologian, of Westminster Abbey in 2000. Uh, as I mentioned before, in April of last year, he retired from the Sea of Durham. The Sea of Durham. We don't have that here. Seas of anything. Uh, I can't imagine a Sea of Durham, North Carolina. Um, <laughs> after uh, his retirement from the Sea of Durham, he began a new post at the University of St. Andrews. We say St. Andrews. I believe it's St. Andrews. Uh, in Scotland, we say Scotland, uh, as professor of New Testament and early Christianity. All this is very impressive, but the bottom line, of course, is that he is one heck of a nice guy uh, because he hasn't left after all this. Um, uh, I think it's safe to say, ladies and gentlemen, 
that you're in for a treat, so please join me in giving a warm Socrates in the City welcome to the Right Reverend Dr. N.T. Wright. Thank you, Eric, and thank you all for being here. And uh, since this was my third Socrates in the city, um, I think I got off quite lightly, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I, it, it gets easier with time, um, uh, bit by bit. Um, though I'm, I'm very grateful Eric didn't do what somebody did to me almost exactly a year ago. I was being introduced um, to actually an even larger audience. It was in university context in the north of England, and the vice chancellor was introducing me. And uh, I had actually on my program um, a copy of the little text that he was to read from. And so I could see the point where he actually made his glitch. But he didn't realize he was making it. And what he said was, Tom Wright was born in Morpeth in Northumberland in 1848 and went on to study at... A... <laughs> and the guy sitting next to me on the platform dug me in the ribs and said, you're looking pretty good for your time of life. Um, so when it came to my turn to speak, I could only begin by paraphrasing Mark Twain and saying that the rumor of my birth had been greatly exaggerated. Um, <clears throat> Um, but uh, no, no doubt, I mean, this has come back to haunt me because the, the word in England at least got out about this and people have um, come up looking very sorrowful to Maggie and saying how difficult it must be to be married to somebody who's 100 years older than she is and all, all the rest. Anyway, there we are. I, I, I saw on the way and I, I was given a little form to sign my life away and I didn't read it all, but I saw that from now on Socrates in the city owns me, body, mind, soul, heart. Every word I speak they can sell without telling me about it, etc., etc. So... Um, but the, the, the worrying thing that was that I saw the title that I had put down to speak on. So um, I'm going to try and think quickly and say something about that title, um, which is about scripture. And uh, I must have said this on the phone or on an email or something. It, it occurred to me that since I have written a book called Surprised by Hope, hat tip, of course, to C.S. Lewis, and since I've written another book, which is now in a second edition, which Eric has kindly put here for me to wave around, called Scripture and the Authority of God. And yes, you may likewise use your cell phones at Blackberries to order this online while we speak, because this is actually, this is a second edition. It was originally, uh, came out in the UK under the title Scripture and the Authority of God. Harper San Francisco, in their unwisdom, published it under the title The Last Word. And I said, A, the last word is Jesus Christ, not Scripture. B, this certainly isn't the last word from N.T. Wright. So C, this was a pretty stupid title. And I, I went on saying that in public at large meetings where the editor of Harper was present until finally he gave in and said, OK, OK, you made your point. We'll do a new edition, but you, the deal is you have, we'll call it the right title. So it is now called Scripture and the Authority of God. But he said the deal is you'll have to do a couple of extra chapters for us to republish it. So um, I, I scratched my He wanted me to do some case studies about the authority of Scripture, and I'm, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and, and that's kind of tricky because there are so many buzzy issues out there at the moment. And if you jump into a buzzy issue as an example of your theory about the authority of Scripture, people just think you're 
bending the theory to fit your view of that particular issue. So I chose two which are not particularly buzzy, though might become so again, and I'll talk about them in, in a little moment. But if you already possess a copy of The Last Word, um, you really want this because those last two chapters are quite important, as you will see. Anyway, um, so I want to talk about the Bible, surprised by Scripture, and then I forget how the subtitle went. It was something like translating, obeying, and believing in the Bible in the 21st century, or something like that, was it not? Yes, good. I'm glad Eric didn't actually read the title because I would have got scared in case it was different. Um, The point is that our culture, your culture, more than mine, has polarized on many issues and the Bible is in the middle of that polarization and it gets kicked to and fro as much as a political football as a hermeneutical football. And you get on the one hand people who just say, the Bible said it, that's it, I believe it, so, so, you know, Take it or leave it. It's just the Bible says there you are. And then on the other hand, you get people whose theme song is the things that you're liable to read in the Bible, they ain't necessarily so. And your culture, I think much more than mine, has polarized down that line. And sadly, that non-debate, and it is a non-debate, has got bundled up with the other debates that um, James Davison Hunter referred to as the culture wars. So that the people who say the Bible says the Bible says tend to be on the right, and the people who say it ain't necessarily so tend to be on the left. And I have no doubt in this room, let alone wider, there are glorious exceptions to that, and I could name a few for a start. But um, it, it's, it's kind of odd because it's selective. The people on the right who say, we just give us the Bible, that teaches us everything we need to know, often don't notice that the Bible does not actually commend Western-style democratic capitalism as the thing which all right-thinking Christians must embrace and must indeed enforce on the rest of the world with bombs where necessary. The Bible just doesn't say that. Um, And likewise, the people on the left uh, constantly say, you can't believe the Bible, you can't believe it says this, is that. They are constantly appealing to ideas of liberty and justice which are in fact rooted in the Bible and which get their historic high moral ground sense from their biblical rootedness. So there are all kinds of oddities about that and we could no doubt spend all evening talking about those. But I want to talk particularly about, and this is really one of the main subjects of this book, about the way in which the Bible can be authoritative because actually most churches say in their official formularies that we live under scripture, we are biblical, we respect the Bible, the Bible has authority for us, etc. But I've often said to people, both in my own denomination and elsewhere, supposing you come into a room where people are living under the authority of scripture, what do you actually see going on? What does it look like when it's happening? Because in my experience, I don't want to sound too jaundiced about this, but frankly, after many years serving as a bishop, you you do see some interesting sides of church life. My sense often is that when people say, oh yes, we we have done our scriptural homework, so now we think this and that, it means I'm sure I read a book when I was at seminary 15 years ago or 35 years ago, which said something like this, and then a friend said to me once, well, actually, Paul didn't mean that. I don't actually see a huge amount of real wrestling with scripture going on in churches. It tends to be that our church teaches X, Y, and I nearly said Z. Let me translate in case you didn't know X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm remembering where I am. I'll be back home this time tomorrow, but for the moment, let's go with the American language. Um, And 
when, when people say that, that the Bible says X, Y, and Z, you know, the, the church says that, they assume that their church is biblical, and so that must be what the Bible teaches. And, and we all play this game. The Anglicans know as much as anybody, though I'm sure you know the thing about Anglicanism. Anglicans have no specific doctrine of their own. It is merely that, I should say Anglican stroke Episcopalians, it's merely that if something is true, Anglicans believe it. That's the, uh, how, Anglican, how Anglican doctrine works. Um, but uh, the point is, you know, Socrates, this is all about the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, the unexamined Bible is not worth having, not worth reading. You've got to examine this thing. So I want to do very quickly, because I've been given quite a tight time frame, which is great, because I want to get into the Q&A, which is where the, the fun really starts for me. I want to explore just a little bit about what it means when we say that the Bible is authoritative. Just introduce you very briefly as a kind of flyer to the two case studies, which do raise some interesting questions about that. Say a little bit about a surprise at the heart of Scripture, which many, many Western Christians don't even know is there, and then say a little bit about the surprise of translation. And that's a surprise, too, which, which you'll see when we get there. So let's just keep you awake. I know some of you uh, were, were, were having several glasses of interesting liquids upstairs before this, so I, it's quite important that you, you don't go to sleep while this is... You know, as long as you've got your cell phone to wake you up so that you can order the books, that's fine. So how can the Bible be authoritative? How can the Bible be? Because after all, in the Bible, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Jesus does not say in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to the books you chaps are going to go off and write. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. So now, I believe in biblical authority, but if you put that together, the Bible says Jesus is... So what does it mean to say that the Bible is authoritative? It must mean something a bit more complicated. And like a lot of Christian doctrines, the way to deal with doctrine is to ask yourself, what is the story being told here? What is the narrative? A doctrine is like a suitcase. You know, Maggie and I are traveling home tomorrow. We've got a lot of kit, particularly people give you books and mugs and things when you're on the road, forgetting that you have to weigh your suitcase. Anyway, um, fortunately, I think our suitcases will just about hold the stuff. You pack it all up so that you can then take it with you. When you get to the other end, unless you're feeling very depressed, you probably unpack it and put it away. Take it out again. Doctrines are like suitcases. They are the portable version of the narrative which is really going on. But when you get to the other end of the journey, you have to know how to unpack the doctrine, the narrative, and then do with it whatever it requires doing. So the phrase, the authority of Scripture, is like a suitcase, but when you unpack it, you find a narrative which goes like this. God is in charge. God has all authority. According to the New Testament, God has shared or delegated that authority to Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself, in the book of Acts, delegates his power and authority to his people by the Holy Spirit. Where does the Bible come in all that? The answer is the Bible is the thing which enables those people to be the bearers, the hearers, and the agents of what God is authoritatively doing in the world. In other words, let's get away from the 18th century rationalism which sees authority simply as about 
there must be some true answers somewhere. Ah, oh, we've got a book on the shelf which tells us them. Let's go look up the answer, put it back again. Thank you, now we know. No, it's a much more dynamic thing than that. God's authority is not there in order to provide true answers to tricky questions, though there are plenty of true answers to the tricky questions when you want to look for them. God's authority is there to do something much more important, to establish his kingdom on earth as in heaven. That's what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28. All authority is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You do your mission because Jesus is now in charge. And the Bible is the book you need to enable you to do that. So, you see, a biblical notion of biblical authority, wouldn't that be nice to get, is not about simply a court of appeal, something you can go to when you're a bit stuck. Oh, I'm sure Paul said something about that. Let's go and look it up and do the fancy footwork on the exegesis. And now we'll count. Phew, got it right. Okay, there we put it back. No, the Bible is the thing that the Christians are supposed to be soaking themselves in so that then as they pray, as they ponder, as they read their newspapers, what God intends to do in the world will be done through those biblically informed, prayerfully biblically informed Christians, wherever and whoever they may be. And you see, the notion of authority of Scripture itself comes to us by a rather circuitous route. Historians among you may know that at the time of the Reformation, in the 16th century in Europe, uh, and, and not least in England, the notion of the authority of Scripture was a strictly limiting thing. That is to say, the Reformers were concerned that the medieval Catholics had set up a system which required you to believe all kinds of different things, all sorts of dogmas and doctrines and interpretations. And unless you believed those, you were in deep trouble. You might even lose your life. And so the Reformers said and they took the particular example of Eucharistic theology, the doctrine of transubstantiation, they said, no, we will only be required to believe the things which can be proved by most certain warrant of holy writ, which was their rather florid way of saying through the Bible. In other words, it was a limiting thing. The authority of Scripture was, we're not going to believe all that stuff just because the church or the Pope or whoever tells us. We will only sign up to being surely required to believe the stuff which you can actually show out of Scripture. But then, when you take that and pull it through the 18th century rationalist grid, and especially the 18th century deist grid, I have to tread very warily on this turf because... There is a large country in this world which was based on deism in the 1760s, 70s, and 80s, and uh, I think I'm addressing some of its elite as I speak right now. Um, you know, so when you're talking about the founding fathers, think about this: deism, Epicureanism, God's way up there, we're down here. That's useful because then we have this thing called religion, which joins us onto God if we want. But for the rest, we'll just do it our own way. So never the twain shall. That's not a biblical point of view. It was very common in Britain in the 18th century, very common in America in the 18th century. In France, they took it so far that God actually disappeared altogether, which is why the French are still rather puzzled about you know, how that all works. Um, but, but the point is then, 
when you talk about biblical authority in that context, you get a rationalistic sense that, right, this is the Bible. Here it is. I've got my old trusty uh, King James that I was given as a con- confirmation present with me here. And you, you, you look stuff up here, and everything it says here, we've got to do it. And suddenly, you're reading the idea of the authority of Scripture through the lens of an 18th century rationalistic piety. And that, I suggest, is at the source of quite a lot of our ills in debates about the Bible today. Ask me about that afterwards if you don't understand what I said, because I want to move rapidly on. Um, But if we then say that God is in charge, and that the way God exercises God's authority through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Spirit is by giving us this book so that we can grow up and become genuine partners with God in what God is doing in the world, then you run into a big problem right away. Namely, how do you then read this book from Genesis to Revelation? Is it all just take it or leave it, any bit will do for whatever purpose you have? How come we don't still offer animal sacrifices? How come they were serving um, crustaceans upstairs? Because that's forbidden in the book of Leviticus, and, and, and so on and so on. And so you need to have what I call a layered and nuanced hermeneutic, a theory of understanding scripture. And the model that I've set out in this book and elsewhere goes like this. Imagine, here we are in theater land, imagine a Shakespeare play which somebody finds in a dusty attic somewhere. And we've got the first four acts of it, but the manuscript has broken off and we're missing most of the fifth act. We've just got a little sketch at the beginning of the fifth act and then we've got a very sketchy sketch of how the fifth act is supposed to end. What are you going to do with a play like that? Now, you could say, well, we'll set somebody who's a real Shakespeare scholar uh, to write a new fifth act for it. Or you could do, you could say, well, we will get the best actors we've got, and we will tell them to soak themselves in the first four acts of this play, and then to see where they've got to get at the end, and then to improvise through the fifth act. Wouldn't that be fun? And let me say, this is not only a theatre city, but also a jazz city. I hope you know that improvising doesn't mean just doing the first thing that comes into your head. It means paying great deal of attention to the way the whole structure has gone so far. If you're a jazz player, you'll know the the chord sequence, the rhythm, the whole uh, flow of the thing. Um, You will be making it up, but you're making it up within very interesting boundaries and limits. And this, I suggest, is the sort of book that God has actually given. Act one, creation. Take that away and you're basically going to fall into Gnosticism, denying the goodness of the created order. Act two, the fall. Take that away and you will just assume that the world is basically a lovely place and it's all very nice, there's no real problem about it, and then suddenly somebody you love is struck down by a fell disease or whatever. You won't have any way of even beginning to ask the question about what's going on creation fall act three forgotten by most western christians for the last thousand years the story of israel i say forgotten of course people still read the story of israel but they didn't think of it as an act in the play most christians to this day in the western world tell the story as i sinned god sent jesus i go to heaven that's not the biblical narrative you will never understand three quarters of the bible if you tell the story like that Act three is that God called Abraham and said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Problem, the people who are carrying the solution are themselves also carrying the disease. 
And the story of the Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness to save the world through Israel, even while Israel itself still needs saving. Act 4, Jesus. You only understand Jesus and the Gospels when you see both Jesus himself and those amazing four narratives about him as the fulfillment of the story of Israel, which was designed to deal with problem two, with act two, the fall, which dealing with that is designed to restore the creation. If we're talking about the authority of scripture, we have to be creation and new creation people. Because then Act 5, which begins on the day of Pentecost after Jesus' death and resurrection, Act 5 has that sketch up ahead, where we're going, Revelation 21 and 22. The last scene in the Bible is not saved souls going upstairs to a place called heaven, but the heavenly city coming down from heaven to earth, so that the dwelling of God is with humans and he will be with them and will wipe away, personally wipe away, all tears from all eyes. Amazing scene. That's where we're going. And if your improvisation is going somewhere else, you're not listening to the rhythm and the chords of the music. You're getting the harmony wrong. The authority of Scripture then does not consist in looking up a passage from Leviticus and saying, there you are, Bible says it, that's what we've got to do today. You'll end up doing some very odd things and not doing some things that we now take for granted, like eating shellfish and so on, if you go that route. The authority of Scripture consists of learning how to live with that whole story as what it is. Leviticus is authoritative for us in the way that stuff in Act 3 is authoritative. It has shaped us. It has made us who we are. But we're not there anymore. Just like actually even in the Gospels, we are not like the followers of Jesus going around Galilee with him. I sometimes wish that we were. And then at other times I look and see how much those guys got wrong following Jesus. Okay, fine. Let's just be the people we're called to be. It wasn't easy doing that. It was mind-blowing and difficult and challenging and sometimes deadly. But the point is, we are in Act 5. We're not in Act 1 or 2 or 3 or 4. But all of that is authoritative in the way that the early acts of the story are authoritative. And this doesn't mean you can just do whatever you like now. Far from it. You'll be taking the story in the wrong direction. I hope you get what I'm saying. So I've spelled this out. It's a model of authority which I still think works. Several reviewers have pulled and pushed at it. Some scholars have tried different, maybe six acts or whatever. Fine. Okay. It's only a model. But I think it helps us to see what so many in our culture have not seen. That it isn't a matter of saying the Bible says the Bible says or no we can't believe all that anymore. It ain't necessarily so. It's got to be more layered, more nuanced than that. Beware, then, being shaped by your debating partners. It's all too easy. Just because somebody else is denying the Bible, it doesn't mean you then have to say every last word in the Bible is, as it were, literally true. We actually know that's not the case. The parable of the prodigal son, it makes no sense to ask of the parable of the prodigal son, where did the father live, what was his name, Um, how much money did he give the son. This is a story. Jesus here as knew it was a story. A lot of the Bible is like that. It takes a certain amount of sophistication to know which bits of the Bible you have to take as literally true, which bits you have to take as designed and deliberate metaphor. The book of Daniel. Daniel says he had this dream in which four monsters, and he describes them, came up out of the sea. 
And then towards the end of the chapter you get an interpretation. This is a dream with an interpretation. Nobody actually thinks that it's a literal, or shouldn't think that it's a literal prediction of four many-headed animal-like creatures crawling up out of the Mediterranean and making their way up to Jerusalem to attack the people of the saints. This is good apocalyptic imagery for world empires, and so on, and so on, and so on. So the surprise of Scripture, and this is the bulk of what I want to say tonight. The other three um, sections are not nearly as long, you'll be glad to know. The surprise of Scripture is that Scripture is supple. It is layered. It is nuanced. It is a narrative. It is a story in which we are called to be actors and actresses. My wife and I went to the theatre last night. Imagine if you were sitting two or three rows back and the play is rattling along and you're excited and it's all wonderful and, and then suddenly somebody on stage looks at you and says you've got to come and play this next. But I don't know. How can I? I no, we're, we're going to improvise and you're going to be part of it. How can I do that? That's very scary. That is what Christian vocation is like. The story has gone to this point and we are called to come on stage and play our parts. And that's what the authority of Scripture actually looks like in practice. Not a matter of just going and looking up a doctrine or a bit of ethics. That's all there. That's all important. It's much, much bigger than that. It's a story in which we are called to take a part. And, of course, you need a strong theology of the Holy Spirit in order to be able to handle that. A couple of things, then, about case studies couple of perhaps surprising case studies. The first case study I did was the Sabbath. The Sabbath. This used to be a very buzzy thing in my world, and now basically everybody shops on Sunday, everybody goes to football matches on Sunday, everybody does anything on Sunday. And those of us who still think it matters to get up and go to church on Sunday feel increasingly like fishes out of water, um, just culturally. That's how it is. Sadly, I think, but still. But when people look at the New Testament and say, what's going on with the Sabbath then there has been an all-too-easy assumption that, oh, well, the Sabbath is now switched to Sunday. New Testament doesn't actually say that anywhere. Listen, the fire engines are coming just because I'm talking about the Sabbath. That's really scary. Um, But the usual way people read it is to say, well, the Jews had all these old laws. The Old Testament is full of legalism. It says you've got to do this and do this and do this and don't do that, don't do that. And the Pharisees developed these and the rabbis developed these. So they had microscopic legalisms for exactly how light it had to be before you knew that the next day was dawning and all of that stuff. So people have built up over the years this picture of Jewish legalism being very fussy and finickety about the Sabbath. And then Jesus coming along and saying, we don't believe in law, legalism. That's all very nasty and cramps your style. We believe in grace and God's good forgiveness and all of that stuff. And so you have this picture of the nasty legalistic Jews and Jesus coming along saying, there, there, it doesn't matter, never mind, we can just do what we like now. That is, of course, the picture that a great deal of Western philosophy has wanted to create quite apart from Christianity over the last 200 years. The Kantian categorical imperative hanging there like a sword of Damocles in the sky. And instead, oh no, we don't want to do that. We want to be existentialists or want to be romantic. We want to be, you know, just, just do your own thing, whatever comes naturally. That's been there in our culture. And we have wished that back onto Jesus and we've sometimes used 16th century Reformation language to try to make it stick. And we're just falsifying the whole picture. Because the Sabbath in the first century was the signpost of hope. If you were a Jew, 
you kept Sabbath because at the end of the week there was this glorious moment when you were free. And you knew that one day God would make an even more glorious moment when the whole world would be free. It's called Jubilee. Read about it in, guess where? Leviticus. Point it back to in Isaiah 61. And so the Jews kept the Sabbath. Oh, no doubt there were some who were fussy legalists, just like there are some people today, um, you know, over-the-top ISTJs on the Myers-Briggs pattern who have to put every last saucer back in exactly the same place in the company. Some people just like that. You know, there is medication you can take now for it, I'm told. But, um, the, but, but, but most, that wasn't what the Sabbath meant for most Jews. The Sabbath is the forward-looking signpost of hope. And it's the cultural symbol that says, we are the people who believe in Genesis 1 and 2. We are the people who believe in the Creator God, whose creation is going somewhere, and we are going to plant this signpost of hope week by week by week. And Jesus comes along and says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Time has changed. Now is the acceptable time, says Paul. Now is the day of salvation. And the Nazareth Manifesto in Luke 4 is all about this. Today, the script. And so, of course, you don't put the signpost up anymore. I've been saying this about the Sabbath for some years. And it's a curious little story to tell you here. Because the illustration I've often used is you don't put a signpost saying this way to New York on Fifth Avenue. Where is Fifth Avenue? Somewhere out there. You don't put up a signpost to the town once you've arrived in the town. I've been saying this for years. Maggie and I moved last summer to a tiny little village. Actually, we live just outside this tiny little village in Scotland. The little village is called Kilconquhar. And in the middle of Kilconquhar, which is all of about 100 houses, there is a milestone which tells you how many miles to St. Andrews, how many miles to Cooper. But at the top, it says, kill apostrophe R for Kilconquhar, zero. I can only assume that the day they were doing those signposts, there must have been a very thick fog. And they thought, maybe somebody traveling along this road needs to know that they are actually there. But this is the exception that proves the rule. You get the point. You don't normally put up a signpost once you've arrived. Jesus is saying, we've arrived. And his abolition of the Sabbath. And look across the New Testament. See, this is nothing to do with, oh, that's a bit of fussy old legalism and we now believe in grace. It's those were forward-looking signposts and the reality is now here. Do you believe that? Do you believe that something happened to time itself with Jesus of Nazareth? Possibly not, because our culture has been taught, we drank it in with our mother's milk, that something happened to time in the 18th century with the Enlightenment. It's a rival eschatology a different way of telling the story and we're still suffering from that the other case study that I took was monogamy interesting that one because you see most people if they say tell me about the Old Testament the New Testament oh well the Old Testament has as I say all these laws and then the New Testament says um, don't worry actually lighten up a bit you don't need to worry about all, all the detail of that and then you come to something like marriage Well, the Old Testament isn't exactly a charter of monogamy, is it? Think of Abraham, think of Jacob, think of David, think of Solomon. Hmm? Countless wives, 
And nobody sees, I mean, David gets stuff wrong, but uh, nobody says it's because he had too many wives. Solomon gets stuff wrong because the wives that he had lured his heart away from the Lord. But nobody seems to have worried about the fact that he had more than one. In fact, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, there are little snippets of legislation for what happens when somebody has two wives or more than two. Polygamy does not seem to be too much of a problem. But in the New Testament, suddenly, we're back to the beginning. Mark 10. The one who made them made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one. What therefore God has joined, let no one put asunder. And suddenly in the New Testament, you have monogamy as the norm. So that then in the pastorals, when people are saying, how do we know who is eligible for office holding in the church? It's got to be somebody who is monogamous. And that assumes that there are polygamists in the church because people are being converted and becoming Christians. Fine, they can be Christians. And they aren't required to put away one or more of the wives because that would be cruel. And there are countries in Africa where this, where this is a real issue now. And I've spoken to African Christian leaders about this. And they say, no, if somebody becomes a Christian as a polygamist, they're allowed to keep their wives. We will not ordain them. They will not hold office because they are not modeling the Christian norm. What is that Christian norm? This wasn't a new rule that Jesus made up. This is saying we are people of new creation. And the new creation is the re-inhabiting of the vision of Genesis 1 and 2. We are people through whom God's new creation is getting back on track. Tough. That's difficult. It was hugely difficult in the first century. It's hugely difficult today. But you see, these two examples give the lie to the old idea that the authority of Scripture only counts insofar as the New Testament is saying there you can get rid of all those fierce old rules in the Old Testament. Some of the New Testament is much more specific, much more definite than anything you find in the Old. That's the surprise. Scripture is not simply about legalism versus anti-legalism, as it were. Far from it. It's about a story and the new moment that has happened in that story. Now, two other surprises and then I'm done. And the third one now is the Gospels, the forgotten story of the Gospels. Forgotten story of the Gospels? We, say, we know the stories of the Gospels. We know about Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. We know that he taught pen parables. We know that he walked on water. He was transfigured. He called 12 disciples. Yeah, we know all that. But what is the basic story they're telling? And the trouble here is this. I love the creeds. Yesterday in that church, Calvary, St. George, Park and 21st, was it you said? We need to keep this ad going. Um, uh, Anyone would think people hadn't heard of it before, but still. Um, we, we, we stood up and we said the Apostles' Creed. I do that ex animo. Day by day I say it in my private prayers. I am a creeds man. But there's a hole in the middle. Have you noticed? The creeds were not a full, were never intended to be a full list of everything that Christians believe. The creeds were kind of the church's washing line. This was the stuff that we got messy and we had to clean up, and so we made a list of it so that we all now know where we are. And so the stuff that wasn't really messy and didn't get cleaned up didn't get put in the creeds. But then the creeds became a teaching syllabus. And so what happens? I believe in da 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 in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And I hear Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the background saying, hey, wait a minute. We spent months, years of our lives, we went gray trying to write up all that stuff between the cradle and the grave. We have hymns that do that as well. Hymns that jump straight from Bethlehem to Calvary. 
That's Calvary, Calvary in the Middle East, not Calvary St. George, but I can't get it out of my head now. Um, there must be some organic connection. I'm not sure what it is. Um, the, the creeds have allowed us to forget that the Gospels are the story of how God became king. How God became king. And we have again been so fooled by the rhetoric of the Enlightenment, which said that nothing changed when Jesus came, that all we got was a bunch of silly old priests and monks doing funny things that we didn't understand that were all irrelevant, and then we had crusades and we had the Inquisition and all of that stuff. This is a litany which was basically made up by the Enlightenment to flatten out the fact that actually with the coming of Jesus Christ and with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we've had healing, we've had education, we've had all kinds of things. You know, in my country, 60 years ago, there was no hospice movement. And then Cicely Saunders, who had suffered hugely herself through bereavement of people near and dear to her when she was quite young. She was a nurse, she was a Christian, she got the vision that we needed hospices and the churches have got together and backed that and most of the hospices in the UK are not government funded they're funded by private subscription and they're run by the and often the medical profession didn't really want to have this terminal care I'm just giving you this as one example I give thousands of others but the point is when the church is being the church it does stuff out there which shows what sort of a god it is who is king and all that flows directly whether the society wants it or not. So the Enlightenment said, no, 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 nothing really happened with, with, with Jesus and all that. Maybe there's a new spirituality. Maybe you can have a hope of heaven if you're interested in going there. But, but we're just going to run the world our way. No, the Gospels are the story of how God became king. Put that phrase into Amazon as well and see what comes up. How God became king. We need to relearn how to read the Gospels. The Gospels are not primarily proving the divinity of Jesus, though they assume that. That is actually, to use another musical illustration, the divinity of Jesus is the key in which the music is set. It isn't the tune that is being played. Get that? Not denying the divinity of Jesus. The tune which is, you know, it's easy for people, oh, so I believe in the divinity of Jesus. That, that's a tick, check, whatever you say. Um, and then you go about your way. The Gospels are about who is this God then who has appeared on earth and who now says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Who is this God? What does that mean? What does his kingdom look like on earth as in heaven? See, a friend of mine, Nick Perrin, who teaches in, in, in Wheaton College, who's also the author of a very good recent book called Jesus the Temple. We're all plugging books. Let me plug Nick's book, Nicholas Perrin. And by the way, my first name is not Nigel, it's Nicholas. You knew that, didn't you? Yeah. Um, um, Nick, Nick Perrin said, um, the Gospels for many Christians are the chips and dips at the beginning of the evening before you sit down at the table and get the red meat of Pauline theology. Just the bits and pieces. Stories, examples, illustrations to illustrate the thing you're going to get in the... Oh, I love the epistles. I spent half my life studying and writing about St. Paul. Fantastic. But the Gospels are more than that. This is the story of how God became king. That's the story they think they're telling. Are we prepared to listen? Because if we're not... Very easy to collapse into 
Gnosticism. Final surprise, translation. I wished that Harper, having criticized them before, I'll just say again, they couldn't hurry up their translation schedule because in October, my translation of the New Testament, to my own, I feel very surprised saying this, is being published here under the title of The Kingdom Version. At least I think that at the last count it was still called The Kingdom Version. Uh, maybe The Kingdom Translation or something. The English equivalent was published last week and it's called The New Testament for Everyone. For some reason, Harper said they couldn't call it that. I don't understand why, um, but there it is. But I've had enormous fun with this because so much in the New Testament, even in the beloved King James, even in the RSV, even in the NIV, all these other great translations which have made their way, haven't quite, for my money, caught the flavor necessarily of what was going on. And the final surprise, um, I, I, I did ask my wife to read this to you, but, but she's, she's very shy, doesn't want to, so that's all right. And I thought of asking Eric to, but that would be OTT, so we won't do that either. Um, I, a little bit from John's Gospel. Get the, get the flavor of... Unless we are prepared to get the flavor of Scripture, then however accurate the translation may be, it will in fact be inaccurate. Pilate went back into the praetorium and spoke to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked. Was it your idea to ask that, asked Jesus? What did other people tell you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I, snorted Pilate. Your own people and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom isn't the sort that grows in this world, replied Jesus. If my kingdom were from this world, my supporters would have fought to stop me being handed over to the Judeans. So then... My kingdom is not the sort that comes from here. So said Pilate, you are a king, are you? You're the one who's calling me a king, replied Jesus. I was born for this. I've come into the world for this, to give evidence about the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Truth, said Pilate. What's that? With those words, he went back out to the Judeans. I find this man not guilty, he said to them. But look here, you've got this custom that I should let someone free at Passover time, so what about it? Would you like me to release the king of the Jews? No, they shouted. We don't want him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a brigand. The reason I wanted to do that is that the center of the New Testament is the claim that Jesus is Lord, which meant in the New Testament that Caesar wasn't. John 18 and 19 is the center of a Christian political theology. And there you have it. Kingdom, truth, power, all up for grabs. Is that something that you're doing business with? If not, how can you be living under the authority of Scripture? I don't want to end with that. I want to end with something quite different. One of the things that Paul does two or three times is to write what actually it's hard to know whether he thought of them as poems or not, but they seem to be poetic. And one of those, perhaps the most famous, is 1 Corinthians 13. And 1 Corinthians 13 has three movements, slightly different. And so I've tried, and English literature people may say I've fallen flat on my face in doing so, I've tried to catch that. If I speak in human languages or even in those of angels but do not have love, then I become a clanging gong or else a clashing cymbal. And if I should have prophetic gifts and know all mysteries, all knowledge too, have faith to move the mountains but have no love, 
I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and for pride's sake my very body but do not have love, it's useless to me. Love's great-hearted, love is kind, knows no jealousy, makes no fuss, not puffed up, no shameless ways, doesn't force its rightful claim, doesn't rage or bear a grudge, doesn't cheer at others' harm, rejoices rather in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, love hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but prophecies will be abolished. Tongues will stop, and knowledge too be done away. We know you see in part, we prophesy in part, but with perfection the partial is abolished. As a child I spoke and thought and reasoned like a child. When I grew up I threw off childish ways. For at the moment all that we can see are puzzling reflections in a mirror. Then face to face. I know in part for now, but then I'll know completely through and through, even as I'm completely known. So now, faith, hope, and love remain these three, and of them, love is the greatest. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bishop Wright. We have time for Q&A. Uh, at Socrates in the City, um, we prefer that you keep your questions in the form of a question. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to hear from you if your name is N.T. Wright. So uh, we always will stop uh, sharply at 8.15, so we just have a few minutes. Uh, there's a microphone there. You'll have to bully your way to the microphone to ask a question. Please do be brief because our time is short, and uh, we would love to hear more uh, from Dr. Wright. Is, you've, you've cowed them all into silence. It's wonderful. I love it. I love it. Does anybody? Uh, yes, a first brave soul. Thank you. Um, Bishop Wright, you talk about a proper interpretation of the scriptures as being layered and nuanced. Um, can you tell us how we can have confidence in the improvisations that are necessary to do that? Yeah, the, the, the question of confidence, we hear that question in our culture, I think often within still a bit of a rationalistic fashion that, uh, or, or, or even a positivistic fashion. You know, we want the sort of confidence that ultimately we know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, so we want to know that God has given us a word which we can trust like thus and so. And Scripture instead tells the story of Jesus and says you can have absolute and utter confidence in the fact that God became human in and as Jesus of Nazareth and that he announced and inaugurated his kingdom, died on the cross and rose again. That is where our confidence is rooted. And we can have that because of the scriptural testimony. But then the scriptural testimony includes the promise that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Now I know that that promise from John's Gospel has been grievously misused by all sorts of people with all sorts of agendas. Ah, I think we should do this. That's because the Holy Spirit is leading us into all truth. So tally-ho, off we go. And that's the point when... 
you need to have the sophistication of how to tell the story again through the first four and a bit acts. Because, you know, if somebody were to say that now because we aren't legalists anymore, um, people should be able to have as many spouses as they like in either direction or whatever, then the New Testament will say, sorry, at this point we, we are very clear. And this is not an arbitrary bit of legislation. It is because we are people of new creation. So you, but you need to be able to do that. Whereas if you just go back and say there is one verse here and there, you may be lucky and it may be a verse which does mean exactly what it says on its face. But in, we're always in danger of hearing individual verses within our cultural resonances rather than within the New Testaments. And this is why this has to be a corporate enterprise. This is why we are given this wonderful thing called the body of Christ. So that when somebody is struggling with a question, there should be a pastor, there should be a fellowship group, there should be people who will pray with them. So that it won't just be their whim, I think this verse is telling me to do A, B or C. But actually it's something that can be tested and thought through through and prayed through and and you know the, the confidence goes with humility for us confidence often goes with arrogance but actually the confidence in scripture goes with being humble before it and before one's fellow christians thank you thank you uh, thank you so much for this talk it was a uh, very enlightening um and something you said uh with the hospice movement being a way of saying to the world, this is the kind of God we represent, this is what this God is like, uh, it made me think, um, in your view, do we let Jesus and Jesus alone define what God is like, or do we try to hold together the, the merciful, not, not pushover kind of God, but, you know, um, very merciful, praying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, do we combine that with, let's say, what we see in numbers with God, um, saying, you know, I will give them so much meat that it will be coming out of their nostrils. And, uh, you know, do we, do we try to make those meat or do we let Jesus kind of set the stage? Um, the, the, the New Testament's answer is very clear, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, uh, Colossians 1.15, or in John 1.17 uh, and following, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, or the only begotten God, depending on which text you read, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So there is this strong sense in the New Testament that all the knowledge of God that goes before is somehow gathered up and refocused in and around and as Jesus. And that great dialectic between Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures is the stuff of biblical theology. That's, that's the central theme. So there's no one easy answer. Um, I think again and again as I read the Old Testament, I'm struck by the picture of God in the Psalms, in Isaiah, yes, indeed, in the book of Exodus, etc., where God gets exasperated with his people. And, and really fed up. I really don't know why I bother with you lot anymore. Um, and Moses has to go and say, look, please, we can't do without you. You have to come. I know we're a mess, but... And God says, okay. Um, but then when you read the Gospels, you find exactly the same. Jesus saying, don't you yet have faith? Don't you remember what happened last week with the loaves and the fishes? And, and, and don't you trust me yet? You have little faith. And then he says, this wicked generation, how much longer am I going to have to put up with them? Etc., etc. Is that, is that just because the Gospels are still thinking in Old Testament terms? No. I think that's because 
how, that, that is how God feels when dealing with ordinary recalcitrant human beings. And Jesus expresses it too. And likewise, I mean, it's very nice because it works the other way. Just as in the Old Testament, um, the Israelites pray to God in a, in a pretty um, uh, direct fashion. Wake up, God. How can you go on sleeping? Come on, do something about this. We're in a mess. Then you get the disciples on the boat. They do it the exact same way. Hey, wake up. Come on. Don't you care? We're going down. And so actually there's much more integration there. Now, no doubt that doesn't solve all the problems. Far from it. But in Act 3, as I say, what we're dealing with is God's risky plan. In order to understand why there's a problem there, you have to go back to the beginning. When God made the world, part of the deal was that God would run the world on the ground through human beings. That's what it means to be made in God's image, is to be somebody who reflects God into the world and the world back to God. So when the world goes wrong, what does God say? Let's not do that anymore. I'm just going to have to intervene. Forget these stupid humans. They're in a mess. No. God will. This is part of the doctrine of creation. God will not unmake that bit. Okay, we're going to have to have a human family through whom I will redeem the world. But God does that knowing that they will get it horribly wrong. And so Act 3, all the stuff in Numbers and the book of Joshua, etc., is mysterious because it's at that point where God has said, I'm going to act this way because that's the way my creation was designed to work. To do anything else would unmake creation. But all of this then comes rushing together on the cross where God's determination to save the world through Israel is accomplished through Jesus, Israel's representative Messiah. Um, unless you see all those lines converging there, it won't make sense. If you try to take bits out at random, it won't work. It only works when Jesus is the focal point. Sorry, this was a long answer because that was a massive theological question. And I've, I've, actually, the answer is actually much shorter than it deserved. Yes, next. I'm Bishop Bright, I'd like your reaction to the following. And you alluded to it a bit with your reference to crustaceans. A um, a very good friend of mine who's a biblical scholar told me recently that there is a growing body body of theologians who are coming to the conclusion that the Torah remains relevant and that Torah observance by Christians is actually important, not for salvation, but that um, for really showing your love to God and that in keeping all of my commandments, that includes the 613 requirements of the Torah, Jesus was Torah observant, the disciples were Torah observant, and then that was not wiped out. Um, what is your uh, reaction to that? Um, well, we have to do without the letter to the Hebrews for a start. Um, and Mark 7 is going to be a problem. And Galatians 3, I think, will be very tricky. Um, I, I, sorry, American sense of humor. This, this, these, these, were, these were very, very serious comments. I mean... Um, The narrative just doesn't work like that. It's very noticeable that at the points where, for instance, Paul says, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the law. And he quotes the Ten Commandments. He never quotes the Sabbath. Why not? The only answer I can come up with is because it had been fulfilled in Jesus. Likewise in Mark 7. Uh, where you have the d- debate about clean hands and unclean hands and then, and then food. And Jesus says, and it's cryptic, he says, don't you realize that what goes into you isn't what defiles, it's what comes out of you. And the disciples think, did he just make kind of a, a lavatorial joke there? What, 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 um, I mean, you, you, there's a sort of 
embarrassment. Should he have said that sort of thing? Um, and it's only when they get into the house that they ask him about it. And then Jesus says, it's what, what defiles you is what comes out of the heart, but eating either with, with unwashed hands or with, with uh, different kinds of foods does not make you unclean. And Mark actually has to add a footnote at that point. Catharidzo and pantatabromata in Greek, which is making all foods clean, just to make it clear what's happened. That is revolution. And the reason Jesus could only say that in the house because if he'd said it out on the street, they might have lynched him. Because there is folk memory from the Maccabean period in the 160s BC of the martyrs who have gone to their death rather than eat pork. Because that's a boundary marker for the people of God when the people of God is a single nation. And here within Galatians 3, for Paul, on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the people of God is now not ethnically demarcated. And therefore, the ethnic demarcations of Act 3 of the narrative are irrelevant, not because they were a bad thing that's been abolished, but because they were a good thing that's been fulfilled. So it is no part of a Christian loyalty to say we've got to pretend we're in Act 3. We're not. You're going to rebuild the temple? Find yourself a red heifer and start animal sacrifices again? <laughs> There's someone to do that, I know. But, but that, that, that is simply no part. And it, but you know, I can understand somebody for whom Scripture is wonderfully important. Hallelujah, that, that's great. Saying, I really want to honor God in this way. But we only really honor the God we see in Jesus when we understand the narrative. And it's right there in the Gospels and right there in Paul. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. <clears throat> Spoke a lot about Scripture. Could you also speak about the role of the church as a positivist? Uh, force and institution for authority, uh, doctrine, orthodoxy, and tradition. And also, please comment on the state of the church in England, Church of England. <laughs> church of England. I haven't been in the Church of England for the last 11 months because I now live in Scotland, which is a very, very different place in all sorts of ways. Um, so I'm not absolutely up to the minute on what's going on. I've tried not to know, which is part of what you do when you move jobs, at least what I do when I move jobs. So I can't absolutely comment on that. Um, I was talking with a friend the other day and we were agreeing that though it's very easy for all of us who have worked in the church to think of a hundred rude things to say about the church, you know, because the church is in a mess on this front and muddled on that front and arrogant and this, that and the other and weak and foolish. We all know that. Nevertheless, if you imagine going to a town and there being no Christian fellowship, not just no spire of a church in the middle of town, but no Christian fellowship, and you walk around and nobody has heard of Jesus, and nobody is doing that stuff, and nobody is praying, and nobody is, is there to help in the way that the church should when you're in need, then it's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. And the church at its best is the family that is there for everybody and is there to bring God's love into the world. And it's within that context of an active church worshipping the God we see in Jesus and then determinedly going out and loving its neighbor as, as, as itself, whether or not the neighbor is expecting it. You know, um, that within that context, then reading scripture makes sense. 
I say it like that in case what I'm going to say now should sound as though it's purely hierarchical, that ultimately we need a magisterium to tell us what the Bible means and to make sure that we're all sound and all the rest of it. That's the way the noble Roman Catholic Church has done it and in some ways is still doing it. Very interesting. I mentioned this yesterday in the sermon. I was the Anglican observer at the Roman Synod of Bishops in Rome um, nearly three years ago now. I had a wonderful three weeks in Rome in October. Great place to be. Um, uh, walking through the streets in my purple cassock with nuns looking surprised who is this strange creature. Um, within Rome itself, there was clearly a debate between those who wanted to say Scripture is authoritative, including over the church, those who wanted to say Scripture, as interpreted by the tradition, is authoritative over the church, and those who wanted to say Scripture, as interpreted by the tradition, and as authorized by the magisterium is authoritative. And the trouble with the third position, as many of the Roman Catholic theologians themselves see, is that that means really it's just the magisterium, and the magisterium will keep a handle on things to stop scripture saying anything that we hadn't been used to hearing or didn't want to hear. That is an internal debate within Roman Catholicism now. Now, most Protestant churches have no similar chance of a debate like that. I mean, the Anglican Church, I suppose, looks more like Rome than, say, the Baptists or the Presbyterians or whatever, but the Anglican Church, as we know, has no magisterium that can do what the Pope and the Curia can do in Rome. However, the sensus fidelium, the sense of the faithful, the fact that, as I was saying to, to the lady who asked the question, Scripture isn't a matter purely of private interpretation. Wow, I've read this verse. I think I've now got to go and do this. Well, you might be right, but you might just be well advised to get together with your Christian family locally and to pray about it and to have good, wise pastoral advice, etc. And that wise pastoral advice should come within a larger context, whether it's an Episcopal context or whatever, a sense that actually Christians on a wider basis are involved with this. You cannot just suddenly up and decide, I'm going to do this and claim that God is on my side. No, we have a responsibility to one another. The problem is that that's been over-formalized, I think, in the Roman Catholic Church and, and somewhat over-protected so that Scripture is still muzzled sometimes, not always. You know, some, some of the best theologians around in the last generation have been Roman Catholics reading Scripture afresh ever since Dei Verbum and the Vatican Council and so on. Um, but there is, I think it's an internal debate there. And so for us, those of us who, who are non-Roman Catholics, Anglicans are in a sense also Catholic or claim to be, though it's rather puzzling to know quite what that means these days, um, there is a sense of responsibility within the body of Christ and of hearing scripture within the echo chamber of the life of the church. But I come back where I started. The life of the church, not as simply a heavy-handed magisterium which is there to teach the truth and make sure you all sit down, shut up, and do your lessons properly, but the church as the people who are delightedly going out into the world and celebrating the fact that God is king and that the God who is king is the healer and the teacher and the renewer and the one who wipes away tears from the eyes. When you're in a fellowship like that, then when you read scripture, its authority is echoing in the right sort of echo chamber. Next question. Uh, Bishop Wright, I'd like to take the seed of that question and plant it in much more ancient soil and ask you about the world before the final canonization of Scripture, which that moment, I, I can't recall the particular date, but is a number of centuries after the death of Christ. 
the Roman Church offers a particular interpretation of how the church remained intact and orthodoxy was preserved, and you hinted at some of the ways that the church, the Roman Church does this. What account would you give of the preservation of the faithful, preservation of the deposit of faith throughout that pre- canonical period of uh, scripture's existence? It's hard to know what one classifies as a pre-canonical period because in a sense, of course, until you have a council saying these are the books and we all sign, you know, that's where it is, then in a sense it's informal up to that. But if you read Irenaeus at the end of the second century, who is before any of those councils, it's abundantly clear where the, the, the weight lies. It lies on the four Gospels, on Acts, on the Epistles uh, of Paul particularly. And then there is still some debate about some of the little letters and about Revelation, which people aren't absolutely sure. And during some parts of the second century, they want one or two other books in there as well, The Shepherd of Hermas. And then they say, no, we know that that's a lot later. So they're working with a loose idea of apostolicity. Um, of course, part of the oddity about this is we know far more about the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s of the first century than we know about the Christian history of the next 200 years. We only have, you know, ancient history is like that. We, don't, we can't go to the library and look up the newspapers and magazines they were all reading because they didn't exist and we haven't got any such thing. So we have a bright light on the very early period, the canonical period itself, and then a much dimmer and fitful light on other periods. I think the thing that it's important to say, because this is out there and it's in Time magazines all over the place, there has been an enormous push recently, particularly in America, strangely in America, not in Germany, not in Britain, not in France as far as I know, um, to say that actually the so-called Gnostic Gospels were quite likely earlier than Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, they're actually much more interesting and subversive and dangerous and exciting. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke and John came along and kind of squelched all that. And then the great church, as it was on its way to becoming socially respectable, said, well, we'll have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and we'll ditch that other lot. That is a modern myth. And by myth, I mean it's a narrative which is not based in any fact at all, but which sustains a particular world view. The Gnostic Gospels do not believe in Act 1. They do not believe in Act 2. They do not believe in Act 3. That is to say they're anti-creational. They do not believe in a fall which then demands a redemption. They certainly don't believe in God's revelation to Israel. They believe rather in Jesus as somebody who is teaching you that inside yourself there is this spark of divine light and if only you can get in touch with that you will be the sort of person who really knows that is Gnosticism what's going on now Western culture is basically post-enlightenment Western culture has a strand of Gnosticism running through it that's been a very popular thing this is not a religion of grace and redemption it's a religion of of, of self-discovery we are a culture of self-discovery. So it's not surprising that at the popular level, people have said, ah, these are the Gospels we really want. But actually, I'll tell you this, the people who are being burnt at the stake and sawn in two and thrown to the lions uh, at the end of the first century, through the second century, etc., were not the ones who were reading the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Egyptians, the Gospel of this and that. They were the ones who were reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. And, and you know, that, that has to be said again and again. So that already by the end of the second century, it's clear that these are the books, 
you know, the four Gospels and the letters of Paul and so on are the books which the church at its very heart, while it's being persecuted out of its skull, knows that these are the books which enable us to cling on to the Jesus who is crucified and risen. And yes, there are other books out there, but they aren't helping us to be loyal to this Jesus. And so although formal canonization comes some while later, um, it's, it's already forged in the fire of persecution in the second century. Let's go for two and, and try, I'll try and be quick. Uh, B- Bishop Wright, uh, one, one of the themes that you discussed was regarding the, the authority uh, that was, uh, is delegated through the Bible to the church. Um, I was wondering if you might be able to uh, briefly mention regarding how the, the concept of delegation of authority in the Gospels can be related to the concept of the Holy Spirit giving gifts as he wills in Corinthians and relate those two concepts together? Um, Absolutely. Those two concepts, and of course I was cutting several long stories very short, um, those two concepts do go very closely together. One of the fascinating things, you know, when Jesus is striding around Galilee, if we were starting to tell this story from scratch, we might well not have had Jesus calling 12 disciples and giving them authority. I mean, these are muddled. They haven't even got their act together. They're not sure what they're about, and one of them's a traitor, and goodness knows. No, the God of Genesis 1 is active again in and through Jesus as the God who wants to work through people. He won't just do it all by the stuff he will do by himself, but he won't ordinarily do it all by himself. He wants to involve people. Um, It's one of the wonderful things which the Western world has almost forgotten about Christianity is that it's, it's a faith which is designed to enable people to grow up and become fully human in God's service. But of course you need a throng, strong theology of the Holy Spirit to get you there. And of course you then need all that stuff in Ephesians 4 as well as 1 Corinthians 12 which you cited about God giving a whole variety of different gifts because God wants to do all sorts of different things in all sorts of different directions. But then the work of, the, of, of Scripture is basic to all of that because the way that God by his Spirit equips people for this as it says in 2 Timothy, is through the scriptures and not by bypassing it and just occasionally going and looking up the odd point. So the whole thing works together. The the, the other passage that really needs to be in there is John 16. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we say, yeah, the world needs that. Go on, get the Spirit to do that. The bad news is that the way the Spirit does that is through those in whom the Spirit dwells. There's a challenge. One more question. <laughs> is this the second visit from St. Nicholas for that book was conceived in this club by Clement Seymour and Thomas Nast? Sorry, I didn't understand your question. I, I say, is this the second visit of St. Nicholas, since your name is Nicholas? Is that really the question? No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> Uh, A very simple issue, which of course has been a great deal written about by evangelicals, is the continuing debate between you and John Piper. Can you speak to that? Was this a yes or no question? (laughs) Um, I, I should say this, since you raise it. I have never met Dr. Piper. We have corresponded briefly two or three years ago. Um... 
we've tried to meet, friends have tried to get us in the same place at the same time, it just hasn't worked that way. Um, the debate between us, as people have pointed out, is really an inner reformed debate. Um, the reformed tradition as it's come through into Anglicanism has informed a huge amount of what I do. His own reformed tradition, likewise. Um, it's kind of a, a sibling squabble as much as anything else. Um, my position is basically I am doing my darndest to understand what St. Paul says and to show the way that I think that works out. And I'm very happy to discuss the exegesis with anyone at any time. But um, uh, at the moment, it's in a rather unsatisfactory state. And again, it gets polarized into, into culture wars issues. And the funny thing, of course, is that you know, in England, I have been regarded for many years as, as a rather dangerous conservative. And it's rather refreshing when I come to America and discover that actually I'm a dangerous liberal. Yeah. <laughs> And they won't let him preach at Redeemer. Come on. <laughs> it's not right. Um, Bishop Wright, Dr. Wright, N.T., Tom, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. We really are thrilled to have you. Now, the best Socrates in a City events, and we have many terrific, tremendous events, um, but the best of them make you feel somewhat frustrated because you just want the speaker to go on and there's just you're just finding that your appetite has only been whetted and not sated, that's intentional. Uh, the goal, of course, we say that we are Socrates in the city, conversations on the examined life. These are meant to be conversations that are begun at these events. You're meant to, be, uh, to have your interest peaked, uh, and you're meant to buy books and CDs and to go. And believe me, we don't get rich doing this, okay? We are broke and we need you. If you have any money and you like what we're doing, we can sincerely use your help. I mean that very sincerely. That's true. Uh, but we do have a book table and a CD table. That is not because uh, we make profit off of that. We have an independent bookseller. It has nothing to do with us. But we want to make available the books and the thoughts of the speakers that we have here because we believe that it's important to think more deeply about these questions. We couldn't possibly begin to cover these things uh, in any final way in the few minutes we have together tonight. So uh, I hope I can recommend to you uh, all of the CDs. We have CDs of tonight's talk, uh, which will be available uh, in about 10 or 15 minutes if you want to hang out. There's more wine and hors d'oeuvres. Hang around uh, and get uh, tonight's CD. If you can't get it tonight, of course, you can get it online. Uh, we sell them. Uh, we would love for you to listen to tonight's talk over and over to really get at it. There's so much there. Uh, I was just delighted by what I heard tonight, but we do have to hear these things usually more than once. Uh, of course, Dr. Wright's uh, books are here. Um, if you'd like to get a book and have it signed for at least a few minutes, um, our speaker will be seated, is sat, as they say in England, is sat, will be sat here uh, to sign books. 
Uh, please, uh, and I hate to say this, but please uh, don't ask uh, you know, the question you didn't get to ask in the line here because we have to move uh, the speaker up to our patrons' uh, dinner, uh, which is upstairs. We have to do that in just a few minutes. It's actually on floor 3M in the Grant Room. If you're wondering if you're in the patrons' dinner, please see me. It's very important that we get everybody hustled up there uh, in time. Um, what else? What have I forgotten? Uh, let me say thank you to all the volunteers uh, who make this possible, and especially to our non-volunteer, our executive director, Justin Homko, who does a terrific job with these events. Thank you, volunteers, and thank you, Justin. I don't want to forget to remind you uh, that we can only stay in touch with you via email if we don't have your email. And so many people yesterday at Calvary St. George's at 11 a.m., did I mention that? Uh, uh, somebody bumped into me and said, oh, I didn't know that uh, N.T. Wright is speaking at Socrates and City tomorrow. And I thought, you've got to be kidding. But uh, the fact of the matter is that it's tough to get the word out. If you're not on our email list or if you have a friend that would like to get our emails, please Give us uh, your, uh, your business card, or better yet, go online to SocratesInTheCity.com and sign yourself up. We would just love to keep in touch with you. We don't uh, bother you with too many emails. Baroness Cox is coming uh, in November. Uh, we're not yet sure uh, who will be our speaker um, beyond that in the fall, but you know we have tremendous, terrific speakers. And also, of course, in the fall, the Socrates in the City book is coming out, and I hope it's published by Penguin Dutton, uh, and we are very, very excited about that. That's just tremendous. Um, I think that may be it. Uh, please hang around. Part of what we do here is we just love to get people together, uh, meet new people, talk to old friends, have a glass of wine, hang out, buy a book or a CD. Uh, thank you for being part of what we do at Socrates in the City, and we hope we will see you next time. God bless you. So you're